Welcome to the Vintage Design Podcast. I'm Alex Clark and I'm joined today by internationally renowned designers Dominic Wilcox and Pascal Anson, who both have new books out, and by Matt Broughton and Stephen Parker from the CMYK Vintage Design Team to talk about all things design, creativity and innovation. Welcome all and thanks very much for joining me. Um, let's just start with you, Pascal and Dominic. Um, Pascal, start us off first. Tell us about who you are, what you do, and a little bit about your, your new book. My name's Pascal Anson, and my new book is called Ordinary Made Extraordinary. And I suppose that explains what I do. I take very ordinary things and I try and push them as far as possible and try and make them as extraordinary as possible. So that could be a material, it could be a process, or it could be an object. Right. I think we're going to hear more about those plastic-dipped shoes and chairs covered in shoelaces a bit later on. Um, Dominic, tell us tell us about you. You've got an extraordinary prop in front of you. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm Dominic Wilcox, and um, I work, I guess, between art, design, invention. I, I just think of ideas and, and make them or draw them. And I've got a book out called Variations on Normal, which I guess is quite, you know, there's, there are similar themes to Pascal and my book. Um, so my book is um, Invention Drawings, and they, are, they could be said to be quite absurd and possibly ridiculous, but there's always an element of logic in them. Yes, so um, these are things like a door that you open and it's actually got a book embedded in it or a teacup with its own fan so that you can cool your tea more quickly, that sort of thing. Exactly. It's practical solutions that may be slightly unusual. <laughs> yeah. OK, let's come back to the um, to the object in front of you on the table. We're tantalising the listeners. Um, and just, uh, just have a word from the CMYK uh, design team. Tell us... Um, Steve and Matt, what you what you do day to day? Okay, well, we design um, covers for the vintage design team um, for the vintage design list. So, um, essentially, we work for Cape Chateau vintage paperbacks, um, Square Peg, Yellow Jersey. Any I've missed out there? Harvel Sacker. Yeah, and um, it's the literary list, of course. So um, we come up with variations of ideas. Um, some mass market, some more sort of like off the wall, and our job is to push the idea of the book cover as far as we can. So you take it from initial uh, idea of what the book's about to how it's going to be presented in bookshops and perceived in a way in a sort of wider sense. Yeah, and if we can take it a bit further now, certainly with the digital age and working social media, um, we sort of have to think a bit more than just book covers. Mm-hmm. Mm. Sure. Yeah. Right, we can ignore this no longer. On the table in front of me is a pair of shoes that looks pretty normal it's a kind of pair of rather snazzy gents brogues in gray with sort of what seem to me like salmon pink laces um but they've got wires coming out of them and i think they're a bit more complicated than that dominic can mm. you just say what what they are and the, these are well i've called it no place like home gps shoes so basically the shoes that you tell you tell the shoes where you want to go and then the shoes point you in the direction of your destination. So I've plugged, I've connected the USB cables. There's a little um, socket in the base of the shoe. You connect the the shoe to a computer and on the computer is a map and you plot on that map where you want to go in the world, wherever you want to go. Then you press upload to shoe so the shoe knows where you would like to go. 
you unplug the cables and put the shoes on and then there's a little switch at the back um, you can see this sort of magnetic switch that is embedded and when you click the heels together um, the GPS is started and in the back um, once the, the GPS finds the signal in the satellite it knows where you are and where you want to go and so the left shoe points um, in a direction um, of, towards the destination and the right shoe, uh, I think, I'll just switch this on a bit. Um, it's, it's oh, a has lit up. It's immediately lit up. Yeah, that's a progress bar. So that grows as you get closer to the destination. And I wanted to be very subtle about it because, you know, you get these gadgety things and they're very gadgety looking. But I'm interested in looking at the past and what we make with the past, the traditional crafts. So these are very traditional men's brogues. But I've tried to be as subtle as possible, integrating these little LEDs that communicate the direction um, within the little brogue perforations. Now, just tell me, is this something that really you're envisaging people using rather than a sort of experiment? This is something that you see as being something that could be made for widespread use? Um, I mean... I enjoy thinking about the possibilities of the future. And um, and so it is serious. You know, I'm deadly serious about everything, even the most craziest idea I'm deadly serious about it. Um, you know, Hang people... on. I don't think you mean your, your desk workplace that's also a coffin so that if you work really, really hard, you can just crawl into it tonight. You don't mean that kind of thing. When you're drawing uh, your, your variations Yes, actually, I do. Because, you do mean that. Well, that one is a coffin. It was a work desk, a work coffin desk, work stress coffin desk. And it's for those who work hard all their lives and then die. And, and occasionally I'll make little comments on life. And so through humour, I think, you know, it's impossible to make these little uh, satirical comments. So actually there is a serious even in that one. <laughs> As the idea that perhaps we shouldn't do that, we shouldn't work quite so hard. Um, thanks so much. I'm sure we'll come back to those those shoes. Pascal, I mean, your book, which, you know, when you look at, at the cover and you see this chintzy armchair and it's absolutely covered with it's what you call the hairy chair isn't it it's That's covered right, with yeah. multicolored, very very vivid bright uh shoelaces you kind of your immediate thought is well i would, I would never have something like that in my house that's kind of, sort of so sort of unusual but actually you go deep into the book and you find things that you really are intending for use aren't you this is stuff that we can do yeah i think if i talk about the chair for a minute um the idea from that came from the fact that maybe somebody's giving you a chair. So it's not something that you can afford to buy. Um, but maybe, I don't know, uh, somebody in your family's died and they've, they've you know, you can, you can uh, uh, take some of their furniture or, or, I don't know, an auntie is, is changing her three-piece suite and giving you that because you need somewhere to sit. And the, the idea was kind of that you might get, you might kind of end up with this chair that was really comfortable, really good quality, um, but you just hated it because it was really ugly. Um, and rather than kind of, and that's kind of paired with this thing of all these adverts on TV for kind of um, 0% finance on 3P suites and kind of buy now, pay next April or, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. And thinking, well, that's very, very tempting. But then uh, the only thing that's stopping me really enjoying this chair is what it looks like. So that was the part that I needed to intervene where I need to, to intervene and change how it looked. Um, so 
because it's a chair from Mark Spencer's, which is you know nicely upholstered, um, it's very comfortable, um, and it, it functions very well. It just looks really horrible and doesn't look like something that I want at home. Um, so it kind of I kind of see it as two things. Either you just kind of moan about it and uh, get into this situation where you think, well, I really hate it and I don't know what to do and I'm going to go and buy something very expensive. Uh, or that I can't really afford, or just make a simple change. Uh, in this case, it's adding shoelaces to it to make it completely extraordinary and uh, something that I would like to have at home. So this is sort of upcycling in a way. Well, I, I've tried to avoid that word because I think nothing... Upcycling for me is kind of taking a jam jar and, and putting some flowers in it. And I think there's there's the book is not really that. It's something else because I think um, this goes beyond just upcycling because... Um, I'm not changing the use of something. So I'm not I'm not getting a bath, cutting it in half and making it an armchair because that, frankly, doesn't really interest me. This is much more about dilemmas that we all have, which is I've got this car, I've got this armchair, which I think is really ugly. How can I change it? Mm. What can I do to it to make it different? And and kind of th- there's, a, there's a line in the book, which is uh, I think in the, in the foreword from Emily Campbell, where she says um, uh, hating something is a really uh, positive attitude to change so there's kind of quite a lot of that in the book there's a fantastic thing which i think is genuinely i one of those things where you think once you've read it why would you not do it which is your idea that here we are in this country where it basically never stops raining um we all quite like wearing plimsolls and trainers so what should we do about it and you literally just dip them into sort of plastic yes there's a product called plasti dip which is um an air setting rubber and um the company Tretorn, which is a Swedish plimsoll um, manufacturer, asked a whole lot of bloggers and fashion uh, designers to to customise some shoes uh, for them. And so I wanted to do something quite functional. And I noticed that their classic trainer, which was, I suppose, is quite old now. I think it's uh, it's getting on for 100 years old, this model of um, a plimsoll. Um, it didn't have any protective um, kind of rubber toe. Um, so the way I customised it was to dip it into rubber to make sure that you didn't get wet toes. And it works. When you jump in puddles. Yes, it works. And we can all do it. We can all get yeah, hold of this stuff. Yeah. I assume it's not especially expensive. No, you can buy it on the internet. Um, a lot of the, the things uh, in there, you know, I tell you where to buy them. They, they're, they're available on, on eBay or on, on the internet. And you just dip any shoes you like into the rubber with any colour. And they're immediately waterproof. One thing that I just must ask you, I mean, there were things that I looked at in the book and thought, I don't think I could do that. Like, for example, taking um, sort of quite basic flat pack furniture and customising it to make a very um, stylish looking fitted kitchen. I just I'm not quite sure I'm sort of up to that. Um, But in general, is this all stuff that we can, however unhandy we think we are, that we can all do? There are different levels of kind of... um difficulty in the book but it's I haven't kind of framed them as easy medium and difficult um, but I did set a rule for myself that everything has to be done without any specialist machinery and without any specialist kind of craft so there's nothing as complicated as knitting but the way I see the difficulty in the book is some projects are there just to be followed step by step um, and they're the kind of basic Project so like the shoes for example getting getting some uh, dipping rubber dipping the shoes into that and then taking everybody can do that there's no real skill involved and it's a kind of you follow that step by step the second level I suppose is where there's um, 
there's some projects where you you might not get a chair exactly like the one on the front cover or it might be it might be a two-seater sofa or a much bigger bigger so you're not going to get exactly that one so you can't follow that exactly step by step but it's there as a way of talking about how you might be able to make something better and then i think there's a third level which is um probably the most difficult which is just about inspiration so saying uh here's this type of material use it in this way or here's something that i've picked up off the floor think about you think about doing something similar so the difficulty is not really about skill level because all the skill is kind of quite basic um the skill level is is a kind of intellectual skill i think mm, mm, it's having that sort of vision let's just broaden the discussion out and, and bring the the um, cmyk design team in a bit just to talk a bit about what design means to us. I mean, you could say, for example, the chair. You need a chair to sit in. That's what you need a chair for. As long as it's comfortable and doesn't have a spring poking into you, you know, who cares? With a book, you want to read the words. Who cares if it's wrapped in brown paper? Obviously, this is not how life is. We do care. We're hugely influenced by the way things look, um, by the ease of use that design kind of helps with. Um, just, Just let's all talk a bit about what design means and how much we kind of take notice of it and whether that's changed. I think people take notice of it from the perspective of style. Um, I think the everyday person likes the way things look um, and whether things are fashionable and these sort of things go in and out. I think from a designer's perspective, we probably think of practicality and um, and stripping things down. So if, we, if we're having to design a book for a certain a certain um, market, um, we will probably start by being selective, by saying we can't do this, we can't do that, and then you pare down to a certain a number of ideas, and hopefully they're the sort of things that your editors are going to buy. That can be a really creative process by cutting things down. Just opening things out continuously can really be quite sort of like frustrating and you don't know where to start. So first thing I tend to do is sort of like cut things down into a, into a group um, a way of thinking, and then seeing if the editors will buy that sort of idea. Um, so it's a thought process more than anything. Um, it's quite interesting when you start going on it, you get a bit obsessive. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, is that, how you, is that how you work as well? Yeah, I think everyone goes through, you know, have their own personal way of, of working through the, the ideas that are ticking over, you know. I mean, we have the additional um, limitations in that we're obviously... In the book cover, we are selling whatever's inside the book, so you know, aspect, you know yeah. there mm. is a slight yeah that we're you know advertising basically what's inside. So obviously we, we although we can push boundaries and we can try and make something look you know in a particular direction that we want to take it, you've still got to you know be true to the content. Um, I know one of the books that you've worked on recently is Martin Amos's new book. Yes, um, yeah. which. Um, is is I guess a, a good example of a challenge that would be set to you because that is a book. It's a novel about the Holocaust. Yeah, you know yeah. there are all sorts of ways. In it's an unconventional novel too. You know it's it has um, lots of comic mm. content. It's a very surprising book. Mm. Um, that's obviously something you've got to think very carefully about how to approach. We did, and I mean, in actual fact, both Matt and I started working on that book when the, the brief came in because. It, it was such a difficult book, and so we thought we'd get a couple of people working on it just to come up with different ideas 
of how you can so, describe the contents of that book in a really simple, effective way that's going to get people to And that's it kind of the way you went, wasn't it? It's a, it's a very simple cover. Yeah, I mean, it was quite a long route. You know, we did try little things and slightly, you know, more hints as to what was inside. And Martin himself had already said, you know, I don't want to see railway tracks on there. I don't want to see Holocaust the traditional yeah, imagery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the things that you would... wanted something much more sort of, sort of symbolic. Yeah, that we're mm. that we're all kind of used to with, you know, depictions of in film and things. So you know that that cut cut down a lot of routes, which we'd, we'd probably filter out ourselves anyway. Mm. But um, so yeah, it was quite a process, and we you know we came up with a lot of ideas that we we whittled down ourselves. Um, and that's completely different as well, which is, <laughs> you know, that's, yeah, yeah, that's the interesting thing about. It. I mean, when I started working on it. Um, I loved it. I thought it was a very powerful novel and very interesting and 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 sort of a subject I'm, I'm, I've always been kind of fascinated with anyway. So um, I kind of had a feel, I think, for for the for the place. Um, and uh, the first thing that, that, that appealed to me, I think, was the signage because it's because of its banality, really. And I, I started working typographically around that. So I did a couple of type versions based on the title and uh, and the concept of this zone being something that is completely alien to every everybody else. And then I also came up with the idea from an interview with Martin Amos of just a glass of black milk, um, which is based on on a poem. Can't think of the name of the poet off the top of my head, um, but it's a Holocaust poem, and I thought it was just a very strong, powerful image about the idea of turning humans into sort of products, mm. if anything, mm. and also poisoning something that's pure. Mm. Um, so completely different ideas to what mm. Stephen came yeah, up yeah, with. But yeah. That's the beauty of it, and that's how we read it. It's and about playing. I mean, a lot of design, I'm sure, is about playing around with those ideas. Um, Dominic and Pascal, just to come back to this this idea of how we regard, the users regard design uh, in our sort of everyday lives. Obviously, it's something we are not aware of or you know the the less uh the less design minded of us are not aware of do we take it for granted do you find that something frustrating um <clears throat> it's very difficult to know what the public think of design i mean if you ask my mum and dad well obviously i mean they've always asked me dominic what is it you do so they, <laughs> <laughs> it's a familiar question i'm to not us a great all, example <laughs> of the uh, typical designer but um yeah it's interesting i mean ikea um is what people, many people think is design. I right. Mean, that's, it's sort of, or, or Apple, you know, a- Apple, Ikea, that sort of, that is designed. Um, because they have very strong design um, footprints, as it were, because they've got a very clear design. Is that why, do you think? Or just because they're very successful and powerful companies? Um, I think they have a lot to answer for. Um, Ikea certainly was... <clears throat> I think once IKEA sort of hit home in Britain, people started talking and thinking about design, and suddenly you, you saw shops that were branded, which had never even been considered being branded, you know, taking on the concept of branding before. Um, I think it changed a lot of things, IKEA. Do you, is there implicit in your, in your kind of tone, do you mean for, for the worse? Um, well, I think, I think at first for the better, and then over time, because it sort of, bludgeons you to death a little really um you mean it makes the, everything the, sort of uniform yeah kind of I, and it's probably overdone now and i think everything's overbranded to a certain degree now to the point where i think branding almost can lose its meaning um 
but these things always change. Mm. Um, and I think it's a good thing because it's, you know, it's, it's a cultural movement, really. If people are getting more design aware, that's not a bad thing. Um, whether they understand it or whether they care to take, you know, take it on in the future and, and, and you know, sort of follow it through, I don't know. Um, we certainly do, of course. Uh, um, but it's, it's interesting. I think watching there's design the that you're very aware of, and there's design that you're not aware of. And I think it's interesting you talking about branding, because in a way, IKEA has a very subtle brand, which is like, oh, I've got those cutlery as well. But it doesn't have IKEA written on it, really. You mm. just know from, from the fact that everybody's got the same glasses and everybody's got the same side table and, 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 and cutlery. So um, you're, you're not aware of IKEA as a brand, you're aware of it as a presence in in kind of people's lives. But I think then there's the other thing, which is this kind of massive, massive kind of awareness of brands, which, yeah, I agree with you. I, th- I think that that is something that's kind of a lot of stuff is overbranded and we're, people probably are. There's that thing, isn't there, about kids, about how many brands they're aware of by the age of three or something. And it's kind of and like it's a lot, 250 right, or something. It's an amazing right. statistic about about brand awareness. I think with IKEA, I think I was more thinking about the monolith of IKEA, the blue and yellow. Yeah. And... I don't think you would have noticed DFS or MFI before then. Like, you know. Sure, it was. It, they, <laughs> you know. They've done what well, they've just basically been very successful at, at yeah. getting their sort of corporate mm-hmm. presence recognised. I suppose because they did something different. They did mm. something we just didn't know. But yeah. exactly what you were saying, Pascal, about the the, the wine glasses and the and the cups. Um, this is a sort of force for good in in IKEA, isn't it? That we could buy things um, that were pretty good quality they're, they're they're okay quality for everyday use and they were extremely cheap and we could go and choose them and we could sort of fill our houses with them um i do think there's often a, a perception that something that is beautifully designed will be very very expensive and will be beyond our sort of price range and i wonder if there has there is a kind of shift in that yeah um i suppose so but but then i think that's where somewhere like primark's really interesting because the kind of ethical part of Primark aside, I think it's really interesting how, um, just in terms of clothes, everybody has access to to stuff in a very quick way. So you'll see it on the catwalk six weeks later, it's in Primark. I mean, I'm not talking about quality. I'm not talking about the conditions in which the clothes are made. Mm. We're just talking about design. Um, and I think this, I'm fascinated by this thing of, of things that are expensive or look expensive or are expensive or are not expensive. And I talk about that a little bit in the book because that's something, that's something for me that's, that's, that's really important here because I'm a designer, but I've designed everything in the book and I'm giving, I'm giving you the opportunity to make designer items. Yes, you've given away your designs really, haven't you? Well, no, because you have to buy the book. I know. But I mean, but there's an element of this you. that that each one is, you know, if there are twenty four and it costs eighteen pounds, that's kind of sixty p per per item, um, and that's a kind of inter- that's that's been a very interesting thing for me to think about the the kind of value of of design from from my own perspective and how I design and how I'm kind of getting my designs out there. I mean, um, I think design. Or this word design, many people see it as an expensive thing or mm. a, a bit on the end, something like that. Yes, not integral, you mean. Yeah, not, but it's not ridiculous because, mm. you know, design's not about money. It's about applying an intelligent, uh, common sense view on an object to make it uh, easy to use or, you know, it's not about cost. And, and I think hopefully um, more and more people are bringing 
um, designers into their business at all different levels. There's all sorts of design now, service design. You know, it's not just objects. It's the way people behave and, and, and making our lives easier. That's what the job of a designer really does. So, but, um, I mean, there's also other, you know, it's not just about um, monetary uh, costs. There are other ways of um, increasing value in objects, um, you know, just as Pascal's talked about. I mean, I did a project where I took the least valuable thing, pretty much, a, a skimming stone. So so it's one of the life's free uh, fun activities. There are others, but it's one of them. <laughs> and I, um, I, made a, I turned it into a luxury skimming stone by um, gold leafing it. And, and making a little leather pouch, which is in the shape of the skimming stone that you can carry on your belt for years and years until you find the perfect lake. And this is really about, you know, what is valuable. And, and there's more than just monetary value. There's um, anticipation and time, uh, you know. And that, treasuring things, yes. I guess. And so there's loads of intelligent ways in order to imbue uh, value into objects or books or, or whatever. Without, yeah. yeah. Let's just um, talk about the, the, the future for a bit. I was recently talking to um, Sebastian Conran who's for, for a piece about, about design and robotics, about the kind of idea that um, technology is going to slightly sort of um, not take over, but certainly pay a very big part in, in the future of design and especially in our houses and, you know, for things like robotic tables that will come when you call them, which is incredibly useful for people who, you know, say with limited mobility. Um, that's obviously a big part of, of book design. You know, technology is going to change the way that you mentioned social media. Um, we're certainly seeing a change in um, the idea of print books alongside ebooks um how much is this kind of very fast moving technology changing what you all do who'd like to kick off that's a rather difficult question um, yeah um it is starting to affect what we do i mean I, you know at the end of the day we're still designing a book cover for a book how that book is then put out into the world at the moment isn't um, isn't very different whether it's a you know physical book whether it's um an ebook. Um, I think as the technology improves on ebooks, and you know, we're already starting to put extra content into ebooks, which obviously need to be designed. So it's it's no longer just designing the physical book and having a, a digital version. And I think that will just you know that will carry on. And I think we will then see much more along the lines of what these guys are doing. That the physical book then will need to be more beautiful and more attractive and have you know other elements that are going to interest people other than the words inside. This kind of idea of sort of limited editions and things yeah, like that, yeah. kind of collector's item sort of thing. Yeah, things. you know, yes. or just something extra or special or, you know, added, the same as, you know, there are added contents in the digital version, the added extra contents in the physical version, which, um, you know, more tactile and more, more visual. So, yeah, all of that is just starting, and it's quite an exciting time to actually be in the industry. I think, you know, there's a sort of, sort of this false idea that, you know the publishing industry's dying off and things, but I think actually it's it's quite a positive thing. It's actually opened up new avenues for designers and writers and. It's one of those publishers. things that you've got to be really sort of careful about, isn't it? If you think of something like ebook design and sort of enhanced um, mm -hmm. reading, when you think about. Um, narratives where you may read about I don't know a particular weather or something, and then suddenly an effect coming. Now, 
something like that could be a wonderful enhancement. It could also be a terrible distraction. <laughs> and actually sort of making that kind of form and function balance seems to me one of the kind of most difficult aspects of what you're doing. Yeah, I think the digital format is is it's just another form. That's all it is. I don't think that they're, um, they should be separate anyway. There should be as much beautiful design goes into the digital format as, as, the, as the hardback or the paperback. Um, we don't so much work on the digital, on the, on the e-books, um, but we are starting to sort of like get a little bit of input. I know with Murakami, there's the beautiful pulsing geometric design, which is used on the, on the e-book, which is, I think that's, that's our first sort of like toe in the water for that. Uh, Doing something different with yeah, it. Yeah, 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 and sort of carrying on the concept of this across to, to the you know the digital format. Um, it's getting to see, getting our publisher to see, you know, that the essentially hardback is, you know, it's the it's the stock inside, it's the cover, it's the boards, and it's the end papers. And what can we do with those? And mm. to keep pushing the idea of the you know, our publishing house is the most creative around and, you know, this, this is what we think about our authors. So that's the kind of concepts we're thinking about. Um, <clears throat> I think, um, you know, one of the challenges is, um, I mean, I work in a different area, but, um, you know, not letting the technology lead the creativity, you know, and that tends to be generally what happens. Someone invents something, some piece of technology, and then people think, OK, what can we do with that? A very limiting way of thinking, and I try. I don't. I try to keep away. I mean, it's the most common way of being of being creative, but um, I don't do that. So I, I I tend to think of it as of technology as an enabler of magic. You know, I see technology as a sort of new form of magic, and 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 so so the idea comes first, and then I find I, I'll make the technology to make the idea happen, such as, you know, I would love to have some shoes that told me where to go and then work out the technology, you know, because there are loads of intelligent people who can do the technology side. But it's the ideas that are really at the centre that li- sh- should lead the technology as opposed to the technology yes, leading. Yes, yes. I mean, I'm gonna, this is a, a... Sorry to launch in with a bugbear here, but I've, I've got you all here. <laughs> I want to ask you this question. Um one of the things that drives me mad about modern life is the way that nobody will leave a bath plug alone or a sink plug. And so that you have plugs that twist and plugs that plunge and whichever way you have them, they break and you have to get a plumber out and it's usually about £200. The original technology, which is a plug on the end of a string, seems pretty unbreakable to me. Why have people done that? What do you mean? The plug that you buy in your hardware shop that costs you 69p yeah. and you just put into your bath is a perfect technology for stopping right. water getting out of it's your bath. Why reinvent the wheel is we're But all those, all those plugs that kind of pop down, I've broken mine dozens what of times. <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah. You know what it's, I it's mean. Kind of, yeah, it's, it's sort of overdone. Desi- it's, yeah. it's over-technologised, I suppose. It's overdone. Yeah. Um, and I'm just wondering... I suppose it's following on from what you'll say, it's kind of overthinking a problem. What are the situations where we really need solutions and what are the situations where we should just have a totally simple and perfect solution? I, I suppose mean, what I'm asking, what are the best simple things? The, the Dominic's shoes is a really, really good example of mm-hmm. that because that's like saying you don't need those shoes because we've got a map on our phone or we've got a paper map. And I think that becomes quite a depressing conversation then because you then start to reduce everything down to things which are are... It's a kind of 
it becomes quite destructive in terms of an analytical approach to saying, well, we don't really need that. No, right. We wouldn't need that. We could we could get by yeah. fine without um, it. And I think I really, really loved what Dominic said at the beginning, which is about logic. And for me, design is about rules and logic. And logic is really fascinating because logic and common sense can exist in your own uh, in your own set of rules. So Star Wars and Harry Potter has a logic. Okay, and you just accept it. You accept that that broomsticks levitate and that there's the, a big Death Star in which loads of people live. You just accept that. But it's a logic invented by the story makers. And then I think once you've got that logic down, you can do anything you like. And it's about, as a designer for me, and probably for Dominic as well, it's about us, uh, establishing a logic, which is a shape within which you can work. And once you have that, I think... You, you you kind of bat away those thing those comments of kind of well we don't need it or that doesn't work or or why sh- why should why should who would who would want that mm. um, and then that becomes very liberating because you, you've kind of set a little a kind of set of parameters within which to work and then I think that's a very exciting thing for designers to to think about and it's very much to do with function. I just want to kind of close by asking you just to kind of. Um, come up with something that you use in your everyday life that really kind of sums up a brilliant piece of design a sort of I mean it actually doesn't have to be totally it doesn't have to be like the bath plug I promise it could be a bit more fancy than that but something that you think okay I love that piece of design it fills a need it does something perfectly it's really made my life better vinyl records Vinyl records. Okay, yeah. say, say yeah. why, why do you say that? Well they've beaten off any every other te- form of technology and um, ways of sort of getting music across, uh, and they're just perfect. They they look good, they sound good, and uh, it's interesting though, isn't it? Because actually, the what they—I mean, they are, of course—they <laughs> smell nice. Um, as well. <laughs> but what what they actually have built into them yeah. is not perfection, isn't it? It's the fact that yeah. you can hear uh, not a kind of totally flat sound. You can hear a crackle. They change over time. Yeah, Vinyl changes liked, over time. I've never liked music with the with the edges sort of like rounded off. I like of. I like to hear the crackles. I like to hear, you know, that age, and I think that's what that's what vinyl does for for me. It's a warm sound. Um, it's 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 beautiful. And I think I'm just from that generation where well we grew up buying vinyl, so it's not new to me. But um, it's good that it's coming becoming new to a lot of other people. But you think it's a wonderful technology? Yeah, it takes up a lot of space, but yeah, it's heavy. That's not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, IKEA made all the storage for us. <laughs> so do books by that time. Well, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, I suppose I would say yeah. a book because it's it's so utterly mm. portable and you don't have to recharge it. Mm. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd go with books, I think, at the, in the absence of being able to think of anything else. I mean, my, my house is full, every wall is lined with books, thousands of which I will never read. I have them there <laughs> for the, purely for the jackets or the covers, um, either just because I like them or because for inspiration, or you know, or they mean something. Dominic, <laughs> I was racking my brain. I, mean, <laughs> I, I think I think one of one of the great the great designs are the ones that we don't even think about or appreciate anymore. You know, and it's difficult to go back to the moment that that was invented, which was really must have been an amazing thing at the time, with that feel of an excitement. My goodness! But now we see it all the time. Um, I'm going to go with the um, the door hinge, which I think for hundreds of years we were obviously using fabric to get out of this boxed room. And then someone had, it's an ingenious thing, a movable wall 
that is so lightweight. We take it for so granted, that that hinge thing. Uh, I really like that. There was another thing I can't remember now. But <laughs> there's a few. Keep thinking we'll come back to you if you do, Pascal. I think for me, it's not an object uh, of design. I think it's more of an invention. And I think digital camera, for me, is something that has massively changed uh, or had a big impact on, on my life socially and also professionally, probably due to cost, um, but also due to the fact that uh, the ability to review images are um, instantly, I think, um, means that I can edit kind of on the spot, whereas before you'd have to wait a week and kind of then think, oh, I've got to do all that again. So the kind of the, the speed, the speed, efficiency and quality that a digital camera allows is my is my design choice. Many thanks. And many thanks to all of you. Dominic, your book is out now, Variations on Normal. Pascal, your book will be out in a couple of weeks' time, The Ordinary Made Extraordinary. Um, and Steve, Matt, your books are basically out all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you all for joining me. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this special design podcast celebrating all things design from vintage books. And don't forget, if you've missed any of our podcasts or would like to listen again, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud and at vintage-books.co.uk. You can find more about vintage design, jackets and the making of books on the CMYK blog at vintagebookdesign.tumblr.com. Many thanks.